thank you for your words of welcome. Uh, it's good to be here. This is new territory for me. <coughs> As you will see here from my accent, I'm not from these parts at all. Uh, but it's a joy to be here and to be and to see Russ again here and to be with you today. I want to turn you to the Word of God, to Isaiah and chapter 42. But I'm going to read from chapter 41, first of all, <clears throat> from verse 21. Now, that's not going to appear up on the screen, is it? No. No, okay. It's Isaiah 41, <clears throat> Chapter 42 is in this context of idol worship and the servant of the Lord who is going to change the total situation. And I want to read this because it gives us the context, the contrast. The scene in chapter 41 is a court scene where God is challenging the idols of this world. And I'm going to make one change in the reading. If you're reading in the New King James Version, in verse 24 and in verse 29, it begins, indeed. In the original, it's behold. And I'm going to read it out as behold, because as you'll see in verse 1 of chapter 42, it begins, behold. It's deliberate. Why they translated it that way, I don't know. But I'm going to retranslate it. I'm not doing any, playing any funny games with the text. It's there in the original. <laughs> Verse 21 then, listen carefully to this. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call on my name. And he shall come against princes, as though mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who has declared from the beginning that we may know? And former times that we may say, he is righteous. Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. The first time I said to Zion, look, there they are, and I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. For I looked, and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counsellor. Who, when I asked of them, could answer a word? Behold, they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their moulded images are wind and confusion. And now the great contrast with the servant of the Lord. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. 
he will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street a bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench he will bring forth justice for truth he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law thus says god the lord who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it i the lord have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand i will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people as a light to the gentiles to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the prison those who sit in darkness from the prison house i the lord that is my name and my glory i will not give to another nor my praise to carved images behold the former things have come to pass and new things i declare before they spring forth i tell you of them when you became a christian you probably had very little idea as to how that all happened where it began and how it actually happened to you some of us were brought up in a slightly different way and we were taught that we decided for the lord jesus christ that we had free will that is not what the Bible teaches. And it took me a little while to unlearn that and to realize there was something far greater than me involved in becoming a Christian. You may have become a Christian in 101 different ways. The important thing is you became a Christian. And as you have grown as a Christian, so your understanding of how that happened and why that happened began to expand it starts as a kind of a pinhead and becomes an enlarged larger circle as you understand the truth about god's way of saving us from our sins in isaiah's day king hezekiah was a good king and he was the one who was king at that particular time but very few people in Hezekiah's day had any hope of salvation. They'd virtually given up. Assyria and later on Babylon were to come and to remove them from the land of Canaan and take them away, Babylon, in exile. It was a bleak future. Where was hope to be found? The ten tribes had already been taken captive. Total disarray. Disappeared off the scene, off the map. And here was Assyria breathing down the necks of the little tribe of Judah and Benjamin that were left. And the nations all around. Assyria and Babylon were the, the great ones. But all the nations around hadn't got a clue. They were in total darkness. And Isaiah speaks into that world of idolatry 
and speaks into that world of hopelessness. Here in chapter 42, we are told effectively, despite the darkness that you are experiencing, despite the fact that Israel and Judah have forfeited all the promises of God and deserve judgment, God is not going to give up on his people. God is not going to abandon them. Chapters 38 to chapters 55 of Isaiah could be called the book of the servant of the Lord. Here in chapter 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. Everything that is going to happen with regard to salvation for the people of God, for the salvation of generations to come, depends upon these words. God's behold, my servant whom I uphold. We read in chapter 41 and verse 24, behold, Chapter 41 and verse 29, behold, with reference to the idols, useless, vain, powerless. They can't tell the past, they can't tell you the future. This servant is totally different. When you look at what Isaiah is conveying, this revelation from God concerning the servant of the Lord, you see something new, something dramatic. It's like the roll of the drums. It's like the blast of a trumpet to draw your attention. God is about to do something remarkable. Something he's never done before. Something that is out of this world concerning his servant. There are four things I want to look at you, look with you this morning. First of all, his identity declared. Secondly, his task explained. Thirdly, the manner of his working related. And then his success confirmed. Our theme then is the servant of the Lord. First of all, his identity as it is confirmed to us. The Lord God speaks, my servant whom I uphold. He is the obedient servant of God he is the one who will do the will of God and no one will stay his hand God upholds him that's a very strong word it means to grip tightly so as you don't intend to let go and that is what the Lord God says of his servant I have got a firm grip upon him he will succeed because I am determined and I've got hold of him and I'm not going to let go. He is mine and I am in control. And the Lord delights in him. He is my chosen one, my elect one. You could choose someone for a particular job at work, but you may not particularly like that person. But they're good at their job. But you don't take any great pleasure in them. It's a bit of a bind, actually, if you try to work for them. They're not easy to work for, but they, they do their job. 
but you don't delight in them. That's not true of the servant. This servant, God the Father says of this servant, I delight in him. I take pleasure in him. He is the joy of my heart. My servant. He embodies real servanthood. He does my will. He gives pleasure to me. Now there's already a hint here of the identity then of this servant. Do you remember the words, the words that were heard from heaven at the baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ? Remember what was said by that voice? This is my son in whom I delight. Listen to him. So God's servant then enters the stage. Israel, Judah, the nations are in a horrible mess. They're in total darkness. Sin has done its worst. Emptiness, vanity, no sure word of God to be found anywhere. Certainly in the Gentile world, total darkness. And Israel and Judah given up hope, thrown up their hands, no hope. And yet God speaks. God speaks to bring hope, to bring encouragement, to say what he will do to change this terrible state of affairs. He will bring about salvation to Israel and to the nations of the world. This is a prophecy then that runs right the way through the rest of history from this day onwards when Isaiah is speaking in Hezekiah's day. This is relevant to you, to me. This is God's word to us concerning our salvation, your salvation. How was it you came to Jesus Christ? What was going on? Well, here is part of the explanation. But then let's look secondly, having seen his identity, even though it is not clearly portrayed that this is none other than Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. He's not identified in that way here. Yet, if you can't see that, then there's something wrong with our spiritual sight. We can't see the truth of this. But the task now becomes clearer, and his identity becomes even clearer. Whatever that task is, we are told, I have put my spirit upon him. His Holy Spirit. Now, when someone like a prophet, a priest, and a king was recognized in the Old Testament, they were anointed, and the Spirit of the Lord came down upon them. Well, this one is the one who was full of the Spirit. God says, the Father says, I have put my Spirit upon him. He's anointed. He's divinely equipped for a task. To do what? To bring forth justice to the nations, to the Gentiles. Now that would be a bolt out the blue in Hezekiah's day. Well, what about us, they'd be saying? Justice to the Gentiles, to the nations, the idol worshippers, Assyria, Babylon, all that lot. What about us? A bolt out the blue. But this is God thinking in the long term. But he's also thinking about Israel. 
He's thinking about his people to whom he's given his covenant promises, despite the fact they've forfeited, they've forfeited those things. Because in blessing the nations, Israel will also be blessed. Many of these nations, as we've seen, were in a terrible state. There was no, there was no one who was going to bring the word of the Lord to them from among them. It had to come from the God who made the heavens and the earth and who brought the whole world into being and made his promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and who makes his promises then to be fulfilled in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. The gods of the nations are useless. They cannot tell you about the past. They cannot unravel the past. They cannot tell you about the future in comparison with God. He is in control. And here is God's anointed. Here is God's elect servant. And he is going to bring justice to the nations, to the Gentiles. Now that word justice is, 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 a, is a word that is very difficult to translate in English. Justice, righteousness, it does not simply mean that justice is going to bring mean judgment, bring right and remove all wrong. It does mean that, don't misunderstand me. It does mean that, but it means far more than that. But we notice that this justice, whatever it is, is universal. It's the leading theme of this section here. It's mentioned two or three times in these verses. But it is universal. And then... It does not say simply removing all evil and righting all wrongs. The servant will do that, but he will establish a righteous order of things in the world. Something that does not exist at this particular time. Because this justice, as we are told here in verses 3 and 4, he will bring forth justice for truth. This justice concerns truth. Truth is not to be found among the idol nations and their worship of idol gods. Truth is only to be found in God himself and in the servant who will bring this justice for truth. It's the Lord who is making his will known. It is the Lord making his truth known. In fact, it is the Lord making himself known and making his servant known who will bring this justice, who will bring this truth to bear upon Israel and upon the nations. God has established truth. God has established righteousness. God has established justice. He has established his order in this world and the way in which he will bring his will to pass. What have the idols got to offer? Nothing. Vanity. Empty. But God's plan is different. It concerns truth. It concerns justice. It concerns righteousness. It concerns salvation. From sin. 
And he's going to do it by making known his servant. So we have the servant and we have justice, we have righteousness, we have truth. He alone, God alone is the sovereign Lord of history. And the truth of salvation and salvation from sin is entirely in his hands. It's not going to be found here upon earth. It's something which God reveals from heaven and reveals it in the person of the servant of the Lord. There was an ancient promise, wasn't there, to Abraham? It was mentioned again to Isaac and to, uh, to Jacob, but particularly to Abraham. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that was spoken nearly a thousand years, well, perhaps not quite as many as that, but that was spoken a long time before Isaiah's day. And God is going to keep his word. God is going to keep his word. You find that, I haven't time to take you through to Galatians 3, but in Galatians 3, that is brought out again. The seed promised to Abraham. Who is that seed? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a great deal is said here in Isaiah 42 that helps us clearly identify this servant. But you begin to see, don't you, that the only one who can do all this is not going to be somebody like Cyrus who will restore the nation of Judah to their land. It's not going to be found in any of the empires that succeed Cyrus, Rome, Greece and Rome. You've got to look elsewhere. And where do you look? You look to God. You look to the servant of the Lord. There is only one person who is equipped for this task. And God has equipped him, anointing him, sending him into this world to bring justice for the Gentiles. Where is salvation going to come from if it does not come from God? That's where your salvation came from. That's the only way you could ever become a Christian. The fact that God has made known the forgiveness of sins through his son Jesus Christ, this servant. But then there is thirdly, something quite remarkable, the manner of his working is clearly related here. He has a certain way of working. He has clear ends, he has clear objectives. They're described for us. Now, if you had lived in the days of Isaiah, and if you had experienced the might of Assyria, and if you had gone and lived a bit longer than being carried off into exile, into Babylon, you would have been on the receiving end of military might, a crushing power that would have destroyed you. Trust your spirit. We're listening here to someone who is totally different. He doesn't come conquering with a sword. He doesn't come conquering, carrying you off into exile, 
taking away your life. This servant is a faithful servant. We're told, first of all, that he will work in quietness. He will not cry out. Verse 2, he will not raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. That crying out is a shout, a loud shout. It's used in other languages of the day to describe a thunderbolt or a raging bull. Well, that hardly is attractive, is it? <laughs> you, you, you want to run away, you want to put your hands up and say, not that way, no way. But this servant will work in quietness. I don't know if any of you have ever served in the army. Been on the end of a sergeant major, bellowing his commands on the parade ground, shouting, almost screaming at you. It's intimidating. That isn't the way the servant works. He works quietly. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice. He's marked by a gentleness. And here you'll recognize some words that appear in the New Testament. A bruised reed he will not break. Smoking flax he will not quench. A bruised reed is one that can't support itself, let alone anybody else. It's broken, it's bruised, it's fragile. A smouldering wick, it's almost gone out, almost extinguished. Flickers and then goes out and then flickers again. Gentleness. No one is beyond the gentleness of this servant. He is marked by this gentleness. It's used in life. Uh, in, in Matthew 12, 15, to describe the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Pharisees were plotting to kill Jesus. How different he was to the Pharisees. If they came across someone who was weak, vulnerable, they would crush them. They would tell them, you have no part in the kingdom. You're a sinner. The kingdom of God is for righteous people like us, but not for people like you. Jesus wasn't like that at all. The people to whom Christ ministered were bruised. They were broken. They felt they were about to be extinguished. They were helpless. They were hopeless. Perhaps there were some in Hezekiah's day just like that. But what comfort him? Here is one who doesn't come and tread you into the ground, doesn't come and crush you, doesn't destroy your spirit, but one who is gentle, kind, understands your vulnerability, understands your helplessness, your hopelessness. And that's amazing. Here is God speaking of his servant, his elect, his chosen one. He's anointed the power of the Holy Spirit. He has power unimaginable, but he doesn't use it to destroy. He uses it to save. Doesn't come to crush. Doesn't come to extinguish life, but he comes to save. What comfort 
to know that this is the servant of the Lord. But then there is strength. He will not fail, verse 4, nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. He's going to accomplish his purpose. He's going to do it in quietness, in gentleness, but with strength. He's not like a bruised reed. He is not like a flickering uh, a wick of a candle. He has strength. He has stamina. He is the saviour of sinners. Though he is a servant, he's clothed in might. He's clothed in power. That's the kind of servant he is. This is the one who will come to save his people from their sins. What a difference then to the might of Babylon and Assyria. But then finally there is a fourth thing here in our text. That is his success that is confirmed in verses 5 to 9. We've hinted already at this. He will not fail, verse 4. He will not be discouraged. But now God confirms his promise. God speaks concerning his own servant and the success of his ministry. Again, in contrast with the powerless idols, they're nothing. They brought nothing into this world. They don't really exist except in the imagination of men's and women's thoughts. But here is the God we are told. Thus says the Lord, God the Lord, verse 5, contrast with the idols who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. Here is God speaking in his power, reminding us who he is. This one who was sent sending his servant and upholding him, sending him in to bring justice to the Gentiles. This is the one who created the heavens and the earth and everything that they contain. He is the life giver. He is the creator. If you read back a couple of chapters in Isaiah 40, there's a wonderful, breathtaking description of the power of this God who created this world. But you see, it's not just something that is in the past. The verbs that are used here, created, stretched, spread, gives, they're ongoing. This creator is not someone who did this and then left the world to its own devices. It's ongoing power, life and vitality. This is the one who now upholds, even now upholds his servant to accomplish this purpose. God is working in this world. In the end, that's the reason why you came a Christian. is because of God's working. God's life-giving power. The God who gave you life and breath. The very air you breathe is the one who's breathed new life into you by the power of his spirit. But he has a very definite calling. You see, he is the elect Servant, verse 6, I the Lord have called you my servant. I've called you in righteousness. I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. These verbs express purpose and intent. 
I'll hold your hand. You will not be alone. I will not abandon you. I will sustain you. I've given you as a covenant. By covenant you enter into a relationship with God. That's how Abraham and Moses, that's what they were speaking about. And that's God again who takes the initiative. It's God who makes the first move, who establishes, but he establishes Jesus Christ, his servant. And now he says, you'll be a light to the Gentiles. That's my plan, that's my purpose. I'm upholding you for that very purpose. It will be a light to the Gentile nations. This is God confirming what he has said and what has been revealed concerning his servant. A worldwide salvation. Blind eyes are going to be opened. Prisoners are going to be set free. The darkness is to be banished. Do you remember in the early ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ? He went into the synagogue in Capernaum. It's recorded for us in Luke and chapter 4. And he takes another prophecy of Isaiah and says, as he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberties of the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This is the one who is the light of the Gentiles. This is the one who opens blind eyes to see. This is the one who brings prisoners out of the prison, those who sit in darkness. That's where you were, that's where I was before we came to Christ. How did we come then to believe? How is this gospel going now to all the nations of the world that has been since the day of Pentecost? It's because Jesus Christ has been appointed to bring justice, to bring salvation, to bring truth, to bring righteousness to the nations of which we are a part. This is God's doing. And here in dramatic fashion, God confirms, this is what I am going to do. This is why I have established my servant. This is why he is my chosen one. I've established him. I've sent him into this world to accomplish my purposes. And then God says, to underline it all, I am the Lord, that is my name. There it is in verse 8. My glory I will not give to another. <clears throat> God's glory is tied up with this saving purpose. That's why God is doing it. He is glorifying his name. When he creates men and women new in Christ, when they become part of the church of Jesus Christ, why is he doing it? For your good? Yes. But ultimately for his glory. For his glory. And that was the burden of the servant of the Lord. He was doing it for the glory of his father. My glory I'll not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. He's nothing like the idols. They've got nothing to say. 
God has everything to say. All we need to hear concerning his servant and concerning your salvation and the salvation of millions from every tribe and tongue and nation in language on the face of the earth. It's a unique glory. He won't share it with anybody else. It's his, it's his servant, it's his plan, it's his purpose and it will rebound to his glory. Isaiah is effectively prophesying a new day, a new dawn. Way beyond Cyrus and the return from exile. Way beyond Daniel in Babylon and the Greek and the Roman empires that were followed. He's talking here about effectively the kingdom of God where Christ is the king. And in that kingdom, righteousness dwells. And in that, through that kingdom, salvation and the forgiveness of sins comes. Ultimately, where does it end? A new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's where it ends. And here it is, 800 years before Christ comes into the world. Do you believe this? Do you really believe this? This is God's word. This is God speaking. This is God declaring how he is going to work in this world. Telling you how it is you became a Christian and why you became a Christian. This is God telling you how he will build his church. How he will establish his son, Jesus Christ. If you cannot see here in this verse, these verses, the Lord Jesus Christ, then your spiritual sight is severely impaired. The Bible says you're blind. You're blind. You can't see. Oh, but there was a time when you couldn't see, wasn't there? There was a time when this book was a closed book to you. You had no time for Jesus Christ. And then you heard the preaching of the gospel. Then you read the scriptures. And you said, I've never seen these things before. Never seen these things before. It's all new. It's all wonderful. Someone declared to you that in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness for your sins. The washing away of your guilt. The imputing of a righteousness which you can never form for yourself. About being adopted into the family of God. Declaring to you God's love. A love that knows no comparison. It was founded in Jesus Christ. And in him and him alone. He is the servant of the Lord. Without any shadow of doubt. How well do you understand the plans and purposes of God? Way back when I was much younger. If someone had asked me, well, when did God begin to love you? I might have said, well, when Jesus died on the cross. That wouldn't have been a lie. But it's not begin to love you at that point. His love is eternal. And his, that eternal love has been progressively revealed and declared. 
And here in the midst of darkness, gloom, hopelessness, no one who can tell you anything about God and about salvation. Isaiah speaks as the servant with a small s of the Lord. The prophet speaks and he says, this is what God has to say. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. He's been appointed and I'll uphold him. He's going to be a light to the Gentile nations of this world. Christ came, did he not, to open blind eyes so that you would see and see him and embrace him and love him and honour him and give glory to God. I don't have time to go on to verse 10 and the rest of it. But what's our response to all of this? Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. Who will not marvel at these things that God has done and is doing? 800 years before Christ was even born into this world, deliverance is being declared, and it's older than that. You can trace it way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the seed of the woman. And you can trace it even further than that to eternity. The eternal, sovereign love of God and God working out his purposes. Do you know this servant? Do you know this Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know that your sins are forgiven only because he died on that cross at Calvary and then was raised again for our justification on the third day? Do you know him? You identify with him, you believe in this one whom God has established, whom God has sent for your salvation. He's a light to the Gentiles. We're the Gentile nations of this world. As he opened your blind eyes, you see, you believe, you love, you worship. And you stand in holy admiration and wonder. The day could scarcely have been darker in the days of Hezekiah. But this book of Isaiah <coughs> speaks comfort. Chapter 40 begins comfort, comfort ye my people. And it is God alone who can comfort him. Because it is God alone who can forgive and cleanse and pardon and open blind eyes. And how does he do it? He appoints my servant, the Son of God who took flesh and blood, <coughs> the anointed Messiah, prophet, priest and king. You can go on to read in the subsequent chapters of Isaiah, in chapter 49, in chapter 50, in that famous chapter, chapter 53. The one who was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was 
laid upon him. By his stripes we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jew and Gentile. What do you need to do if you're not a Christian? Nothing except to come to him and to cast yourself as a lost and guilty sinner upon this Christ. That's what many of us have done. He's not disappointed us because God's word is true. You say, how can I know? God has spoken, my friend. God has spoken. You can't rely upon this world. What can this world offer you? Next to nothing. Not even next to nothing. Nothing. Nothing in this world can save you from your sins and wash you clean and make you ready for heaven. It's only God's servant. It's only Jesus Christ who can do that. So we give our praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. We give our praise to God the Father. It's interesting here. I'm not going to go on a, on a tangent here, but the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they're all involved. <laughs> the Trinity is involved here. That's the way God works. That's the way God works. But let's respond with praise and worship and adoration this day. How great is God and how great is his love and his purposes will stand and will never fail. Blessed be his name forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord we thank you that you have not left us in darkness in despair in hopelessness Lord we were without God and without hope in this world we were not your chosen people of old we were among the Gentile nations of this world Lord, we followed idols. But Lord, you've spoken. You've made your salvation known in Jesus Christ. And we come to rejoice in you this day. And to sing your praises. Blessed be your name, O God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you.